This month, The Spectator becomes the first magazine in history to print 10,000 issues, and we'd like to celebrate with you. Subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for just £12. Plus, we'll send you a bottle of commemorative Spectator gin, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash celebrate. Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. This week, my guest is my own personal heroine, my sister, Carmel Thompson, who has been going through the most dreadful ordeal after being diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer, and now, of course, has to do so against the backdrop of the coronavirus lockdown. And I have to tell you, if you're expecting a depressing episode, I think you'll be surprised. So here we are, it's all a bit bizarre, because you're having a glass of wine, and I'm puffing on my vape, and we're cheerfully going to have a podcast episode in which we talk about your cancer. And one of the remarkable things about this whole experience, which has been so terrible for you, obviously, is that one can say, oh, you know, how's the cancer coming along or whatever, and not worry about treading on eggshells. So people who are worried about using the C word, you know, don't with you, because actually you talk about it too. I mean, you don't bang on about it like an old lady talking about her chillblains at the bus stop. But I mean, I'd hate to be a cancer bore because there's nothing more tedious, really, than people who are not going through that same disease, uh, having to listen to a litany of of every little twist and turn to it. But at the same time, I don't mind if if people want to talk about cancer. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's nothing nothing disgusting or um, sort of horrifying in that way. It is so much a part of life and many people's experience. So if I can just very quickly go through the background rather than forcing you to go through it, on the podcast. A few weeks after our dear mother died in August 2018, you developed horrible symptoms. We didn't know what it was, but you had very extreme and painful buildup of fluid around your middle. And to cut a long story short, on November the 1st, 2018, I was with you when two doctors gave you the bad news. The first doctor was, I thought, a little mournful in his delivery but then we went to see your fantastic oncological surgeon both of these doctors said this is stage four ovarian cancer it is not something we can cure and a few minutes after that I managed to nip into a room next door to talk to Mr Mera the surgeon and you can imagine what I asked him and He said, I can't say. And after I made anxious noises for a bit, he said, why are you being so negative about this? You do realise people live for years with this disease. And then we did a podcast about it, which has had the most terrific response from people all over the world. And that was... When was it? January last year. That was before you'd had your big operation, wasn't it? Yes, I think I'd had two or three doses of my first chemotherapy and it was a couple of months before my surgery. 
So I was on a first high in a way because I wasn't feeling too bad the day that we recorded it and I'd had good responses to you know begin my chemotherapy journey and so I was feeling yes something's happening um, which was really good. Um, what followed wasn't so uplifting because although the operation was a success it was what they call a radical operation. I remember it was of course an absolutely horrible time. You had the operation and I remember seeing you smiling just after you'd come out of it. But in the days that followed, you went through absolute agony. I know because I came around to see you and you weren't feeling your best, shall we say, were you? No, I mean, I had an immediate sort of high when I first came round because I thought, ooh, I've survived and the operation's over. And of course, I was pumped full of every sort of um, drug imaginable. And then... The following day, I think I had an enormous hit from the effect of opioids that they pump into you to deal with the pain. And unfortunately for me and for many other people, it just caused tremendous nausea, the worst nausea I've ever felt. And it just doesn't allow you to think straight. You can't think beyond your your symptoms, Your you know, even to move my eyes towards one side of the room where somebody had sent me an enormous bunch of beautiful flowers was just too much and I couldn't bear anybody really talking to me or anything it was just it was like nothing else on earth and uh, I mean they were all very good to me and they were very attentive but I just couldn't get beyond the feeling of just stop this and then what followed after nausea uh, when they began to sort of dose me down. The pain of aching, indigestion, um, bloating, like you just want to hold your stomach the whole time, which went on actually for a few weeks, really. It just it just came down a little bit in intensity. And then, of course, the weakness that goes with it that you just can't bear to get out of bed, but the, the nurses are always uh, encouraging you to do so. So it was a very difficult time, very difficult to believe in in better, um, as one advertising strapline goes. I couldn't think beyond those symptoms, really. And once I had discovered that that would reduce in intensity and I could get back to feeling like me again, of course, it was a very different experience. But And also, there were lots of things to do with surgery, like um, this enormous scar. Well, not yet a scar, a sort of wound, um, which just seeped horribly. And they just kept applying dressings and... And it was all rather disgusting, really. You just feel like a, a sort of building site somehow that's all going wrong. But but I was very glad to hear that it was successful and that they had uh, cleared a lot out of me. But um, but yes, there was a point at which you visited me and you were the only person I could bear to have in the room. Now, that's something I've never heard said before by anybody else. <laughs> so... Because you kind of understood and um, and you kept people away. Bless you, you turned some some very willing and and, and nice person away from the from the door of the room because I just couldn't bear to see them. Uh, so. <laughs> well, I wasn't phased by the sight of you periodically, uh, discreetly and elegantly throwing up because um, I've thrown up a fair bit in my my time for different reasons. And um, I think you weren't embarrassed doing it in front of me, particularly. I was very distressed to see you in such pain, but I knew that the operation had been a success. 
So that was a quite a different feeling from when you had the cancer symptoms initially, which were also very, very painful. And I was absolutely worried to the point of madness. But after the operation and after this very painful recovery, and I don't think anybody anticipated it would be so painful, things started looking up very quickly. And from my point of view, very dramatically as you kind of flowered. Um, you got back home and we thought that we were going to have to move your bed downstairs and, and it was going to be a very long process. And actually it wasn't a very long process. By the summer, you were throwing a big party, a fantastic party, one of the best I've ever been to. The theme, the theme was purple, so everybody had to wear something purple. So I went to the ecclesiastical outfitters and bought an Anglican bishop's purple shirt and dog collar and a copy of The Guardian, just so I could be in complete fancy dress and wrung my hands a bit and look like a, look like a wimp. But everybody was in awe, and you gave a speech at the end of this party, in which you sounded amazingly sober, considering the circumstances, which were, which were you guzzling like everybody else. And, wow, we had a wonderful time. We really did. We did have a wonderful time. I mean, uh, my conspirator, Shelley, next door, helped me really get that party up and running, and all sorts of lovely little touches. But it was so important that I could take back control in a way and hence determined to do my own speech it was going to be my moment to say thank you and to say what this revival was all about purple not just being my favorite color but being a sense of renaissance really a new birth and and confidence and looking forward and into the future by the summer we were all feeling very optimistic because the count what is it called co125 CA125, yes. The... CA125, yeah. The CA125, which, which is a measure of cancerous activity in cells, were low. But then, at the end of the summer, you noticed that your numbers had crept up ever so slightly. And even a small movement in that direction was not a good sign. So if you could tell us what happened next... So it had been a marvellous summer, I suppose a kind of honeymoon period really, because I'd returned to wellness and had all the freedom to do everything that I felt like doing and enjoy time with my friends and loved ones and bringing up my puppy as well, all the sort of gorgeous, hilarious times with him over the summer. Yes, we must mention Otto, who is a Norfolk Terrier of excitable temperament and lovable temperament with a with a temper it just has that little streak in him but most of the time he's cheeky and he's charming and has been a wonderful godsend really to uh, to my life so i felt i was living a kind of charmed life wonderful to hear the news from the consultants that i was in remission clinical and pathological remission and feeling really well and uh, astonishing myself i think by just what i was able to do and of course, you hope that that goes on for a long time and that it would take me into the following year. But yes, the number was up at one of my treatment sessions. I was on maintenance therapy. And so they ordered a PET scan to a particular kind of contrast imaging that would show up what the soft tissues were doing and the activities within the tissues. And unfortunately, I think by the November... 
it was showing that uh, progression had happened. That was a very low moment when my lovely doctor took me through the various reports of the uh, of the scan and and had to tell me that um, within different areas, such as within the liver and uh, nodes within the chest, had actually shown some new activity, and so I was no longer in remission, and therefore decisions would have to be made in terms of uh, what came next. And so I mean, I remember sitting in my hospital room and when he had to, to leave with his little entourage, feeling very bleak and that sort of creeping sense of fear that my honeymoon was over and that this was the reality that was uh, coming home to roost. So that was a, a hard time, or was last November. Um, and from there... The decision was made then that I would start chemotherapy, a different regimen in the new year. I had a new consultant by then um, because my other one had retired and it was a sense of here we go again and I didn't know what was around that corner and so began 2020. With another round of chemotherapy and I think we can say some more success. Yes, I mean I started the year with the numbers game again at 71 and within a month it had come down to 29 and then 15 and then just recently 12 so not only within the normal range but right down at a at an all-time low for me so uh feeling absolutely <laughs> thrilled by that i have to say so one way of looking at ovarian cancer including stage four ovarian cancer, is that it can be regarded as a chronic disease that can be managed for a very long time. And it's a fact that plenty of women have done so. It's a complicated and it's a sensitive subject. Every time I see you and talk to you, I get the feeling, first of all, that you're managing this disease without letting it take you over. And secondly, more remarkably, there's normally something else you want to talk about and that it's not at the forefront of your mind. No, I mean, I think the return to wellness and, and keeping well and having my numbers responding and uh, as well as my wonderful friends and loved one around me um, have enabled me to adopt this sense of denial, actually. And I use that uh, word advisedly because... What I mean is, and other people have described this same sensation, it's not the denial that is like the workings of grief, where the first stage is that you do not accept that something has happened to you. I do accept that it's happened to me, and I follow advice of my doctors, and I do as I'm told, and I try to live well. But I do actively set aside the sense of cancer in my mind and get on with my life, and I... I don't want to be part of this cancer club as such. And I know many people find it helpful to join umpteen chat rooms and to discuss every symptom they have. And they, if they find that helpful, that's marvellous. And they, they look up all the trials and they discuss the data with other people. And I just don't want to do that because I don't want to be defined by it. And I also know that there's some kind of evidence that a positive state of mind can help you live longer and and I think I'm going to make an enormous assumption that I'm going to be the person at the head of the survival curve who doesn't succumb to what some people have to go through and therefore maybe I can believe that it can come true 
And so actually, a lot of the time I don't go around thinking I've got cancer, I've got cancer. I just think, right, what am I going to do today? I'm going to cook something new or I'm going to clear out the fish pond or I'm going to take my dog for a walk. And you did go to a cancer sufferers survivors group at one point and I think you were a bit put off by the way they couldn't talk about anything else weren't you? Well yes it's a very worthy charity Overcome and they provide lots of support and meetings and groups for people and and it was a doctor talking about some of the the therapeutic new groups of drugs that are proving very promising and then people sat round the table with sort of not party hats on as such but kind of sharing nibbles and quiches and and talking about their oh I've been diagnosed three years ago and or I lost my sister to it or I had a terrible time with this side effect and I just didn't want to be there I I just reacted to it. I mean, I took my lovely neighbour Shelley with me, but we both of us almost had to shake off the effect of being in that group. And it's good to be informed, I suppose, but I just did not want to be part of that club. It's If you find it helpful, great. But I think there's a lot to be said for this active denial that you're sensible, you do as your doctors tell you, but you, you don't live a cancer life. Now, you just mentioned your lovely neighbour Shelley. Um, for me, that's been a really important and wonderful aspect of this experience. I remember soon after you moved to Upfield in Sussex, you live on your own, and I remember you saying that you have a fantastic, friendly neighbour, and I thought, well, that's nice. And then, after this happened, I got to know her and discovered that she really is fantastic, is putting it mildly, and she's become a great friend she and her husband mark and she ends up giving me lots of support and advice about everything from my finances to the color of the walls in my flat to how to protect myself from the coronavirus i remember carmel um, we were children in the 1970s when there were lots of sitcoms on the telly and they always involved a neighbor usually a nice neighbor sometimes an annoying neighbor but it was a sort of world in which people were always popping in and out of each other's kitchens. The Good Life being the most famous example. And it never happened to us. This business of the neighbour with whom you become great friends. And I wondered whether it was partly a sort of fictional thing that didn't really exist in real life. And then, finally, it's happened. You are in and out of each other's kitchens, at least before the virus. And... Wow, what a difference it's made to your life, but to mine as well, because she's a formidable and lovely lady. Well, I love the the fact of blending different streams of your life together, as it was before we were all in lockdown, so that somebody that I learned to love and to really enjoy time spending with you did then as well and have lots of other of my friends as well have met Shelley and and she's a great party girl and uh, loves to share a, a drink with me but she's she's somebody I can tell anything to and she was there in the early days when I was having difficulty with eating certain things and she came and held my hand when I was really queasy and just aching and having a horrible time and she came and just sort of comforted me. So everything from that to having a laugh or giving me some ideas about how to redecorate a room or think about some styles to bring some new life to different parts of my house to just uh, being there for me, really. When I first came and saw this house, the guy who was selling it to me, he said, oh, do you know what? I bet you'll get on with Shelley next door. And how right he was. Gosh, what an illustration of the power of friendship and the power of other people, which is something that I think that 
the whole nation is experiencing now? Yes, I think that we are now discovering that there's so much that we share, really. And and for me, that's been particularly important, that everybody has been through, is going through this experience where suddenly normal life is suspended, that uh, we're worried about our health, we're faced with ideas about our own mortality... It's a very anxious time. It's a very peculiar time. I found that particularly helpful, really, not that I want anybody to go through this, but to know that I share that. I mean, I've been in kind of corona lockdown in some ways for the past 18 months, and now it's something that we all share. And I think we're not just Shelley and myself, but we're all kind of discovering what values we share and how we're all able to come together in, in unexpected ways. It's inevitable that we talk about cancer and the coronavirus because, in a way, the whole country is living through a period of surreal misery that, in a far more extreme way, you experienced when you were diagnosed. And I remember we were talking on the phone the other day and you said, I found myself thinking about the coronavirus far more than I think about cancer. But I wondered if you just got some advice, since I have never seen anybody cope with a health challenge as brilliantly as you have, sis, I wondered whether you got some advice for us about this dreadful epidemic. The thought of Boris Johnson going through his ordeal this week has really brought it home to me in the most unpleasant way. I mean, it's very hard. I I, I have no um, panacea for anything like that, other than just having discovered in myself the ability to stare down at the dragon and and survive it that you can you can face the worst and yet discover things within yourself um i don't know what the the answer is to it as such other than a sense of self belief really that you are more than you think you are i mean not in isolation because i've had an awful lot of help uh, from people but um Sometimes you have to reach for distraction. Sometimes you just have to put it to one side. Yes, go into that kind of denial. But there's also something about treasuring simplicity. The simple, small joys of life. Really try and invest in those. To try and take joy in the sunshine, in a little bit of gardening, in cooking, in simple pursuits and to be okay with that really I mean one of the sources of inspiration I've had is um, what I call the two Teresas really so our mother's favorite saint I believe Saint Therese of Lisieux so she was a great figure I think to tell us about living the simple life and valuing the ordinary she was somebody who was very humble it's a little bit twee but the idea of being something simple so she talked about the splendor of the rose and the whiteness of the lily do not rob the little violet of its scent nor the daisy of its simple charm if every tiny flower wanted to be a rose spring would lose its loveliness now, it's a little bit chintzy, maybe, a little bit fey, perhaps, for some people, but I know you what think? she means. <laughs> yeah. yes. And I certainly don't see myself in terms of being a little daisy or a little flower. Yeah. But you know what she means? It's this idea of making small changes and valuing those tiny things in life. There's an awful lot of ordinariness that we face now in these sort of corona times where you just think, oh my goodness, Groundhog Day, you know, what do I do with today, really? And just actually taking time to think, this is okay, this is good. 
And the other Teresa that I like is St. Teresa of Avila, so, you know, a few hundred years before St. Therese. The way that she says, may today there be peace within, may you trust God that you are exactly where you are meant to be. And that's a kind of humbling thought that maybe we're not able to do much within the confines of our own homes at the moment, but what we are doing is important and it matters and it's part of the plan. Um, Wonderful Father Julian Large of the Brompton Oratory talked to me a few months ago when I sort of had a bit of an identity crisis and not knowing where I was going with all of this and he talked about the fact that there is always a plan for us but it isn't necessarily ours to know what that plan is. And that plan maybe is the ordinary and the simple and to get on with the small things in daily life that are part of our responsibility at the moment, you know, within these corona times. Well, I don't think any podcast would be complete without our mentioning our gratitude to Father Julian of the Oratory, whom I knew as one of the gossip columnists of the Telegraph when he was a young man and... Um, not yet a Catholic. Terrific fun, mischief maker, and when he announced he was going to become a priest, I thought, oh, good God, Julian, how long is that going to last? Well, he's now provost of the oratory, one of the most famous Catholic churches in the world, and although it's not this year, sadly, but is famous for the meticulous splendour of its Baroque liturgies, in fact, the pastoral support he's given you personally, obviously I haven't heard any of it, but just from the way you talk about it, I can tell that it's meant so much to you. Yes, I feel really grounded somehow. I feel supported that they've not forgotten me, Father Julian Large and Father Ben Keeley as well. Father Ben Keeley, who is a great friend of mine, he came down to Upfield a couple of months ago and said Mass in your enormous kitchen which is twice the size of my flat and he said not just any mass but the ordinary mass so it was in unfamiliar and much more beautiful language than we normally hear on a Sunday and said with great reverence and it was wonderful to be able to introduce you to Father Ben who is one of my best friends and also the most heroic campaigner for persecuted Christians around the world putting his life in danger quite recently, actually. Won't go into the details. And he runs a a charity called Nazarene.org, which I implore people listening to this podcast to support, Nazarene.org. And if you visit the website, you'll find out about his work. Essentially, he finds work for Christians whose ordeal is going to be made so much worse, actually, by the coronavirus in, in different ways. Well, it's been lovely having almost my two personal pastors, Father Julian and Father Ben, at my side, sometimes physically and then sometimes just giving me a phone call or sending me a message so that I feel really grounded somehow that uh, I have the spiritual support I need. So Father Ben saying that beautiful Mass in the house and Father Julian giving his time so I went up to see him so that he could just talk me through some of the... I don't know, confusing thoughts that I was having. And I feel really blessed that I have these two priests who are thinking about me and supporting me. And particularly, I was touched by 
Father Ben starting that novena um, to Cardinal Mincenti, whose cause I think is being considered for sainthood, for nine days so that encouraging people to pray for me. I've been so touched by uh, his campaign for me and by people's response on Twitter and social media. Let me just explain, Cardinal Mincenti was the heroic leader of the Hungarian church in times of terrible persecution who ended up seeking refuge in the American embassy for many years. A course has been opened, and Father Ben brought with him a relic of Cardinal Mincenti, which had been given to him by Ambassador Edward Habsburg, who's Hungary's ambassador to the Holy See, and yes, one of those Habsburgs, very much, and who is a lovely man, a friend of mine, who has prayed for you every single day, since your ordeal started, as have so many people, including, I'm going to give him a mention, uh, Michael Gove. In the, in the middle of all the, the crisis of the last few weeks, sent me a text message saying he was praying for you. It's absolutely astonishing. I am so thankful and astonished by, by people's kindness in, uh, in remembering me. I almost hope I can do them justice and, and do my bit to get as well as I can. And I do feel the difference. Sometimes when you're going through this, this lonely time, as it can be, to hear that people have remembered you is something just transforming. It really is. I find it helpful, but also inevitably a bit disturbing, to remind myself of your illness when I'm going through what I think is a tough time. And I think, well... Carmel's got cancer, and she's not displaying the epic levels of self-pity that I am because my broadband isn't working fast enough or whatever. <laughs> now, at this stage, I want to reveal that Shelley is sitting next to you at a safe distance, and I'm going to go to Shelley Turley. Hi, Shelley, because I want somebody else, not just her biased brother, to tell the world how Carmel Thompson has responded to this terrifying challenge. Well, Damien, I haven't known you and Carmel for that long, but I can only say I feel extremely privileged to know you both. And you have given me, in equal parts, an awful lot. Carmel has been amazing. She's such a positive, fun, lovely lady. And I just know that she's going to beat the... The C word. The C word. <laughs> beat the C word. I'm not going to say it because, yeah, OK, OK, cancer. I've got to think about it. And a lot of us are going to get it. I mean, I've had a very small cancer, but it's still not very nice. And so I sort of kind of understand. But I've been so lucky that I've been involved and introduced and welcomed into Carmel's circle of friends. Wonderful Irwin and Besson, Paul and Jim, and the lovely Beebs. I'm sure Carmel will agree with me, but since she's had this diagnosis and all that she's been through, I think she's absolutely blossomed. I think she was like a little chrysalis, and now she's a butterfly with the most beautiful wings. That's a beautiful way of putting it. Carmel and Shelley, thank you so much.